You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. This is Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and this week I'll talk to Gideon Haig about his new book, A Scanlan Bohemia The Life and Death of Molly Dean. Plus, Lachlan Carter, CEO of a 100-story building, drops in to talk about the Literacy Project's five-year anniversary and how McSweeney founder Dave Eggers helped start it all. Enjoy the show. Three, triple, ah. So murder is an aperture through which to see the past, so said our next guest author and journalist Gideon Haig in a recent interview about his uh, new book, A Scandal in Bohemia. This is the book about the life and untimely death of an aspiring writer, Molly Dean, who was a peripheral figure in the sort of bohemian set, I guess, of the time. Although I have to say, Gideon, it did seem a little bit less uh, bohemian in terms of its views on women and other things, sex in particular. Um, Talk a little bit about this character, Molly Dean, who sadly we know about, um, as you have alluded, uh, in that idea of seeing things through murder as an aperture to the past. We know about her through her sad, um, untimely death. Well, that was what first drew me to the story. Um, But I, the death is kind of fascinating in in a way that death uh, can be. Murder is often uh, a convenient means, as I said, through which to view the the um, fears and uh, apprehensions and taboos and hang-ups of of a society. Uh, Molly was a uh, born in 1905. She was um, from sort of lower middle class origins. Her father was a school teacher. Um, who, her mother was widowed young. Molly grew up with aspirations which were fanned by her education to uh, to become a writer. She was obviously she's very literate, very articulate, big reader, uh, and it was just it was the first. Um, it was sort of immediately after the introduction of secondary education, state school secondary education in Victoria. So she probably got better educational opportunities than she would have if she'd been born ten years earlier. She aspired to she she wanted to lead a career, so she became a school teacher. That was one of the few careers that were open to uh, to women at that time. Although, of course, if you got married, that was the end of your career. She didn't aspire to be married. She aspired to be a um, autonomous, creative individual, and she gravitated naturally towards the kind of the uh, artistic and creative salons of Melbourne. Uh, these in those days were. were relatively small and, and overlapping. It seems to me that um, sort of everyone in, in the arts, whether it was the written arts, whether it was the, uh, the, the painting or, or sculpture or, uh, or, or journalism, seemed to know each other at, uh, at, at that time. Molly, um, first of all, had uh, an affair with um, Melbourne's leading conductor, Fritz Hart, and she then fell in with a group of painters, uh, the school called the Tonalists, whose guru was Max Meldrum, whose leading figures were the likes of uh, Clarice Beckett, Eustace Jorgensen, uh, and and Colin Coulihan. Colin Coulihan was a um, uh, very gifted painter, probably Meldrum's most accomplished and successful disciple, and also an extremely charismatic and uh, and. 
provocative and uh, ebullient young man in his 30s. He was married with a child, but that was never an inconvenience for um, for, uh, for Colin. Um, he um, was a serial philanderer and Molly was, was one, of his, uh, one of his partners. Uh, it broke up his marriage, but uh, it, Colin was kind of comfortable with, uh, with, the, with the degree of chaos in his, uh, in his personal life. And uh, so the relationship did, did not run smooth. What happened to Molly was that uh, as probably her relationship with Coolahan attenuated, she was on the way home from the theatre one night, um, walking towards her family home in, uh, in Elwood, when she was viciously attacked uh, and horribly mutilated and left for dead in a in a laneway, and that is how she's chiefly known to fame. It was a cause celeb in in Melbourne at the time. Uh, introduced Melburnians to the idea that there were these kind of bohemian groups in their midst, and left a fascinating kind of legacy, uh, which inflected the the course of artistic history in Australia. But uh, but also left behind a, a kind of a residue of um, of of, um, of discontent because the crime was never solved. A uh, man was accused of the murder, but the trial never went ahead. And in a way, it, it sort of tailed off into silence. With these interesting kind of occasional echoes uh, down the years, one of which is what triggered my interest in the story in the first place, which was that it's uh, it became the origins of a subplot in George Johnson's novel. My brother Jack Coolahan uh, got to know George Johnson, the writer, in London in the 1950s. Johnson was inducted in the story and uh, took on the uh, the Molly Dean Coolahan relationship uh, as uh, or, or reinterpreted as the relationship between Sam Burlington and uh, and Jessica Ray, which has a similar trajectory and uh, and has a um, has an important impact on the evolution of the of the character of David Meredith, who's Johnson's alter ego. It's these extraordinary sort of strings that I just love about this book that that this aspiring writer herself becomes a character mm, yeah. in the you know the novels, thinly veiled autobiographical mm. novels of these kind of leading literary figures mm. of the time. What I sort of really find extraordinary about the book you've written, though, is that you're not just relying on those sources, not even slightly. Mm. And what you've done is kind of a, a mix of what modern sort of true crime journalists, I guess, do. Mm. Where you've gone back, you've read over transcripts from court cases, you've read over these amazing interviews mm. that you managed to get, yes. but also you've you've kind of raked through trove, um, you've found newspapers, clippings mm. but the thing that most struck me and really moved me mm. was the absolute length that you went to to find molly's work as a mm. writer yes. yeah. and i felt like that was to my mind one of the very big and deep differences between this book and other true crime books that you've you've spent so much time really trying to get to know this person mm. um not as she was seen through other people's eyes no. alone, although you do do that, uh, but very much to find her words, mm. to give her a voice. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, and let's face facts, most writers, and I'm sure Molly, well, 
we know Molly was no exception. Mm. She was hanging around with these guys who really didn't treat her very well at all, which, again, is no surprise. Mm. In writing circles, it still happens. Um, But she wanted to be the writer Mm. uh, and she was seeking support from these people. She was seeking people who would publish her work, who would give her Mm. some feedback about her work. Um, So you've managed to kind of dig up pieces that you think belong to Mm. her and, you know, basically attribute her authorship of those. Talk to me about that process and and what you went through because you do really touch on this in the book, which I think, again, is a point of difference. Generally, authors sort of like want you to feel like you're in the story. Um, You've Mm. actually said, no, no, you're in the story, but this story had to be found. And so you're showing a lot of craft here as well. Yes, yeah. I wanted to, I mean, you know, Molly wanted to be the author of her own story. And part of the reason for that was I I wrote a true crime book a couple of years ago called Certain Admissions, which was about uh, the murder of a young woman called Beth Williams on Middle Park Beach. and the, the 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 perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator, was a man called John Brian Kerr, who was a very um, uh, uh, kind of authoritative and, and commanding figure. Uh, and he naturally became the focus of the uh, of of the narrative. I tried, um, I did my best to to do justice to the victim, um, Beth Williams, but there was not very much to say. There was not very much recoverable about her um, all these years later. I tried to trace her family with without success. And I, I enjoyed doing the book, but I reached the end of it with a sense of dissatisfaction in the sense that I didn't feel as though I'd done the victim justice. I didn't think I'd uh, paid sufficient attention to her humanity. So I thought if I do go down this route again, I would like to do a book that talks about the victim, that tells about um, a true crime from a victim's perspective, which is rare because normally um, true crime is fascinated by extremity, abnormality. It's fascinated by violence. It's fa- fascinated by perpetrators, uh, which is which was um, something I, I hadn't suspected until I kind of tried to orient myself in true crime when I, when I studied the genre. So when Molly came along through the pages of, uh, of, of Johnson's book, I wanted to do my best to kind of recapture the figure that she had been and to attend to the 24, 25 years that she lived rather than the, the night that she died. What was additionally interesting was the afterlife that, that she led, but we, but we might um, get onto that a little bit later. Yeah, as it was, the, the newspapers at the time, they reported that she was an aspiring writer, but they never actually told you about her writing, which I found curious. Uh, no one actually bothered to seek it out. So I thought, well, I'll... I'll do it. I'll have a go. Uh, and I, so I picked out sort of six uh, literary periodicals of the, of the 1920s and I went through them page by page through, the, through that decade to see if anything looked like the work of Molly Dean. And I did find kind of three or four articles or short stories, essays that did seem like hers. And I also found her poetry and she wrote in her school magazine and she wrote, actually, she was a remarkably accomplished poet for uh, for her age. So there was something, I think, to her talent. Um, and it was it was better than just saying she was a writer. She aspired to being a writer. I, I wanted to take her seriously on her own terms. The best find of all was um, she wrote a poem or several poems for a magazine called Verse, which is a short-lived literary periodical of the late 1920s edited by a man called Louis Lovata. So I was in the State Library and I found this poem and I thought, well, Louis Lovata, um, I'll just see if he's in the catalogue. Ah, 
Louis Levada's papers are in the State Library of Victoria. So I go up there, I have a look at the index to the papers and what do you know, there are half a dozen letters from Molly Dean written to Levada and she speaks. She speaks in this very charming, very entertaining, youthful, energetic, engaging voice uh, and it really gave me a very strong sense of kind of meeting her halfway uh, across the uh, these otherwise unbridgeable decades. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. It's a show about books, writing and the craft behind it. Uh, we're talking to author Gideon Haig, who is someone very familiar with this type of craft. Uh, and I really feel like his book, A Scandal in Bohemia, is a masterclass in researching uh, anything actually at all, but uh, in particular, trying to unearth uh, historical figures, which he has done with the wonderful Molly Dean, who I feel I know after reading mm. this book. And I'm and not in that kind of, I don't know, There's there's a kind of I guess spine tingling sense that you sometimes get when you mm. you feel like this is a character that I I could know now absolutely mm. she feels like a modern writer and there was one I think it was a scene that was taken from another of her lover Colin Collahan's um, mistresses uh, mm. she wrote a story in it I felt like more than anyone she seems to have kind of absolutely nailed yes. Molly as a character. I think she describes this moment when, um, you know, Molly's trying to talk um, to the other writers as mm. they're discussing some intellectual yes. thing and, you know, basically gets told to shut yes. up. Yeah. And yeah. I just thought that was just, that's just an amazing moment that makes you go, I, you know, thinking about, say, the Arrested Development Roundtable yes. yeah, yeah, <laughs> recently, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. just like, hello, yeah. this yes. stuff. Yes, it does sound very familiar, doesn't it? I mean, in a way... That's what made this story so compelling in the sense that it really did resonate with kind of contemporary debates around how difficult it is, even now, to be a kind of an autonomous, creative woman. Uh, in some senses, we've finally caught up with Molly Dean. Um, wasn't wasn't the other way around. Uh, I, I found... I found something very moving about her plight. I found I found as though I could really empathise with that sense of kind of asphyxiation that she, that she would have that she would have felt, and the fact that she sort of fell between worlds. I know that uh, some true crime right readers will go want to cut to the chase and say, "Well, who did it?" See, to me, it didn't matter who did it in the end. What mattered was why she was killed. Why was she walking home that night uh, after midnight? Uh, Away from a lover whose interest in her seemed to have dwindled, towards a home where she, where her way of life was regarded with hostility um, by her by her widowed mother. Uh, why was she vulnerable? Why was she falling um, between those those two worlds? We have avoided talking about the murder, and I mm. think that that just sort of speaks to the richness of this book. Really, um, there are some really quite awful characters in this mm. um you know molly's father is a horrible person but mm. he is long dead by the time we get to this book uh, her mother is far worse in many ways uh she's emotionally manipulative mm. um she's kind of like keeping this almost police state around her daughter yeah. and seems set on her marrying this guy um adam graham, graham yes. who with whom she has uh the mother ethel uh is uh, having a little bit of a strange relationship, mm. let's just say. There's some suggestion of perhaps a sexual relationship mm. between the pair, um, but they're trying to drag Molly into this. Um, 
there were many suggestions that either Adam or Ethel killed Molly yes. eventually. I think the way you place this is that you give just enough of that story mm. to sort of uh, set the interest. And also you do something. That one of the things I thought was really cool about this book is that although the murder happened in, in 1930, you do manage to pull in one of those things that is very much, uh, dare I say, trope of the form, which mm. is that you get the um, the murder call or the kind of 911 call if it's an American thing or the 000 call, the triple zero call, Um you know, there is one of those in a sense that um, Molly has a conversation with um, Colin Coulihan just before her birth, uh, her birth, rather her death. Um, and it's sort of really, you know, it's like this uh, recounting from mm. the... Um, from the people who've uh, kind of put through the call. So you've actually got this element in there, yeah. which I totally didn't expect and went, that's amazing. Mm, Talk is, to me it? about where yeah. you got that from. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, the... Um one of the great things was that the you know the historical records do once you find them because they they were not altogether easy to find they do give you quite a vivid uh, impression of what it was like you know under the stars under the new moon on uh, on uh, in Melbourne on the twenty first of November nineteen thirty it's almost described kind of minute by minute including the telephone call that Molly made to Coolahan from a phone box at St Kilda railway station after midnight that night where she was trying to get him to um, uh, trying to engage him in this idea that she had of leaving the teaching service and becoming a full-time writer. And you get the sense of kind of Colin just pushing back, even to the point of being somewhat uninterested in the whole thing, uh, that he's wearying of, the, uh, of, of, of Molly's dramatics, of her, of her dilemmas. You can just feel that the two of them sliding apart. Um, Interesting thing is that the, the night that um, that they that of the murder, they'd been to see Pygmalion. They'd been to see George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. And Which is pretty ironic. Well, if I mean, you think and when you it. read the script to Pygmalion, you just imagine how it would have reverberated in their in their ears. This tale of uh, the young woman sort of raised from the gutter, turned into a princess by by Henry Higgins. Uh, who then finds herself kind of falling between worlds. Uh, she can't go back to her past, but she can't. She's not on the same social par as um, as as uh, Henry Higgins and uh, and and his household. Uh, there's also the fact that she's reading Main Street, Sinclair Lewis's Main Street, on the way home that night. We know that because the the book was found in her in her handbag. There's um, just by these the ready-made literary ironies there that is. are just lingering there. The other thing is that he, she's actually, as you've said, calling him to discuss this yes. career that she mm. wants to have, and. You know, in some ways it's sort of as much as, you know, there's absolutely zero suggestion that Coulihan had anything to mm. do with her death, apart from the fact of being a complete prick, I guess, yeah. really, and, and just not being there for her, is that really in some ways she did die of, uh, of a lack of, you know, interest in her as a, as a mm. writer. Mm. Like, had he mm. sort of said, you know, come to my place or I'll pick you up or let's talk about mm. it or anything, had he not left, you know, left her hanging, I guess, in a sense, she um, she might have been able to yes. Um, yes. to go safely home. Or conversely, you could see it as, you know, she actually was there hanging on the line because she really mm. wanted to talk about yes. what was important to her and that ultimately sort of kept her lingering until, mm. you know, what happened. And then ends up hanging on the wall, Um the cover of the book is a painting that uh, that Coolahan made of of Molly the night before she died. It's a nude of her recumbent in a um, in an armchair, 
and uh, it's called Sleep and uh, it was a fascinating painting to trace. I had to go and find the painting uh, and I did get the opportunity to see it the real thing it's never actually been shown in public uh, it's owned by a by a private collector in uh, in melbourne uh the um there's only one photograph of of molly um that was published in a lot of newspapers at the time it's not a very satisfactory photograph it's rather grainy and uh and um contains none of the um contains none of the uh, uh, the thing it doesn't convey anything about her character, which is which is what um, really detained and uh, and and fascinated people. But the painting somehow, the painting does do her justice. It's got it's definitely got a lover's gaze about it. Even though Coolahan's painting, the, the toneless school, was all about treating people as objects, simply the play of light on surfaces. You can tell that somehow that that painting goes a little bit deeper than than even Coolahan, the supreme technician, was was quite prepared for. It's a lovely place to leave this conversation. Although uh, Gideon, I could be talking to you all day about it. There's so much in this book. I really want to commend it to people um, as a great work of journalism. Uh, you know, there is such depth of research to this. It just screams from every page. But you do us uh, the great kind of um, you know. I guess teaching moment of showing us these these things behind the scenes that that writers really go into to to get a depthful work of nonfiction. I think there's a great myth um, that these things somehow mm. come out fully informed, but this is the work of countless hours of research that can only be motivated by a deeper love of a subject. So thank you, Gideon. My pleasure. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Anti-gravity changes, chambers, changes, Uh, giant kittens, skipping llamas. Who knows what wild imaginings are coming from the brilliant young minds of the kids who spend time at Footscray's 100-storey building, not to mention the crazy folk behind the place, including CEO and co-founder Lachlan Carter, who's with us now yeah, in the studio. Thank you for introducing me as one of the crazy folk. <laughs> Just like this, for all of our funders and supporters out there, we are, we are uh, an organisation with good governance and stable management. Totally stable. <laughs> um, they may believe in uh, secret trapdoors in anti-gravity chambers, but actually anti-gravity chambers are a real thing. So they, yeah, I mean, it's all a real thing. I mean, it's all real. The, the trapdoor, just to, to give a bit of context, so 100-storey building, we're a creative uh, storytelling centre <laughs> in Footscray. But, I mean, that's not to say that the stories about the trapdoor or are, uh, are unreal in any way. We are a 100-storey building. So we're, we're the Southern Hemisphere's only 100-storey building. Um, we're situated on level 100 in Nicholson Street Pedestrian Mall in Footscray. And at the back of the building, there's a trapdoor that goes down to the 99 floors underground. And you're also perfectly poised for puns, of course, about that 100-storey S-T-O-R-Y building because, of course, there's many, many more than that that have come out of it. I read a figure where you've helped something like 20,000 young people from marginalised backgrounds uh, in the course of the time uh, that the 100-storey building has been going as a notion. Um, But the actual building has been going for five years and I want to find out 
where did this idea come from? Uh, how did you think about it? Because I have a little inkling of where this started because I was lucky enough many, many years ago to wander into 826 Valencia, which was actually a magic superhero shop, yeah. um, <laughs> which had things like invisibility cloaks and all sorts of crazy stuff uh, was going on in there. I think um, I took back, took back a few kind of magic potion <laughs> um, type, type options um, coming out of that. Talk to me about where this idea came from. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, 826 is a, uh, an organisation based in uh, the States. Um, it was founded by, um, co-founded by the author Dave Eggers, um, who is a publisher, who has McSweeney's Publishing Company. Um, he's the author of a number of best-selling books. Um, he wrote the screenplay to Where the Wild Things Are movie. Um, bit of a hipster god. Right? And he, um, uh, in 2007, he was a keynote speaker at the Melbourne Writers Festival. Um, and sort of at this time, I, um, uh, I'd been studying to be a teacher. Um, uh, my partner, Jenna, worked in uh, educational publishing. I was going off into schools, uh, doing my school placements, sort of encountering a lot of um, sort of just challenging situations with the teachers in these schools where they had uh, children uh, coming to them with a, a really wide variety of um, sort of outside challenges they'd be presenting in the classroom. The teachers were under-resourced and didn't have the time to provide that sort of one-on-one support um, for all of these students. And I was working in areas in sort of the Western Melbourne. Um, so Jen and I had been sort of talking about doing some sort of creative collaboration at that point going like we've got a wide creative network there's stuff that we could do um sort of to bring into the classroom some kind of support we you know we both experienced creativity as a really important aspect of our our own education um and around this time we saw Dave Eggers speak at the Melbourne Writers Festival and he he was uh his keynote was essentially about this organization that he'd set up um called 826 Valencia and it came out of uh very similar sort of um experiences he had a lot of teachers in his life um, who was talking about this, you know, inability to provide that one-on-one support to these students presenting with like really challenging needs. He had this broad network of creative individuals, a publishing company that was looking for a new office space. And so his idea was, well, moving to San Francisco, we'll find an office for McSweeney's that has a, a space attached to it that could be like a homework club for kids and they could come in and do creative activities with like our authors and publishers and, and we could support them in their, their learning. Uh, and so they found a space that was, um, uh, it had a, a an office, a workshop area, and then a, a shop front. And it was zoned for retail, which meant they had to sell something out of the shop front. So they were like, we don't know what we want to sell. That's not the point of this. But they started just sort of doing a bit of a fit out with all of their friends, pulling down all the old ceiling tiles and exposing these beautiful old wooden beams. Someone walked into the space and said, looked at the wooden beams and said, it looks like we're inside a pirate ship. So that gave them the idea, we've got the obvious idea, to sell pirate supplies um, out of their shop front, which meant the kids would walk through this really weird space with like eyeballs for sale and like different size peg legs depending on um, you know whether you're a parrot or a, a human pirate um, and the kids would walk through there and it'd be like this creative gateway for them so then they'd come in and they'd work on these collaborative projects and it just had a really um, sort of big impact on those young people in terms of their sort of creative headspace and the school community started really engaging with them. So he's talking about this, uh, the fact that it's sort of the idea then started popping up in other areas of the country and they sort of formed this network of 826 National. So in New York, where you visited, there's a superhero supply store uh, where you have to enter through a secret bookshelf to go through to the, the Creative Writing Centre. Just a word of warning, the invisibility cloak may not actually work. I'm Did, just sort of saying. So you, you're on the way through the security <laughs> gates at the airport, they caught like, you? They can't see me. They can't see me. <laughs> I think there has to be an element of belief there. Or I don't know, what's that other thing? Imagination. Yeah, there's... 
like that. that. That sometimes yeah. comes in handy here. But that, so this that organisation sort of like had this really big impact across the country. We saw him speaking about this in the Melbourne Writers Festival, and we're like, oh, this makes so many you know it connects in so many ways. I love pirates. So we went over. Actually, someone in the audience put up their hand and said, Mr Eggers, can I come work for you? And he said, sure, come be an intern. So we did. So we went over and did three months internships over there um, and brought back a lot of um, sort of just that experience of how they work with volunteers, how they honour the creative process and support children and young people to go through a real creative process and sort of demystify and unpack that and bring out um, all of the the, uh, the approaches that different creative professionals use. Um, and so we then started running little projects when I started uh, as a teacher as a graduate teacher we ran a project in my class my first class which was connecting my students with um, uh, authors in a letter writing exchange over six months and and through that six month letter process they were pen pals they worked on a story together so each pair created and crafted a story where they were providing feedback back and forth and we published each of those in a book um, and we have found this amazing generous community of um, uh, the children's literary kind of world in Melbourne um, an incredible bunch of individuals and we had some, you know, some folk like Tony Wilson, you know, Triple R man, um, who is uh, still doing great work with us. He's been working with a school in uh, Dandenong recently, Warana Park uh, Primary School, um, and just a really generous group of people who then provided, sort of opened up their creative process, and that started to inform our programming. So over the next couple of years, um, we delivered more and more projects. We started to sort of take the idea for 100 story buildings started to take shape, um, and in 2013, having secured the lease on Southern Hemisphere's only 100-storey building, we opened the doors. Um, and since then, our program has massively expanded. So we've been working across the West um, and other parts of Melbourne. Like I say, we're working in partnership with six schools in Dandenong this year. We've been working in sort of Broadmeadows area as well. Um, and all of these children and young people engage with this in lots of different ways. So whether that's one-off workshops where they come in to, sort of to work on a creative um, narrative idea um, through to long-term partnerships with schools and other organisations, afternoon and weekend programming too we've got a book club um, which is a teenage book club run by the teenagers and uh, they're facilitating programs for other younger teenagers so many things going on yeah. i want to talk to you about um, something that you've got coming up that people might want to know about or mm -hmm. get involved with um, but if you've just joined us and are wondering what the hell we're <laughs> talking about you're on three triple r's backstory uh, we're talking to lachlan carter i'm mel cranenberg and um, this is a story about the 100 story building uh, which is an amazing project uh, it's an amazing project for so many reasons because uh, it helps the young seeds of our writing community to grow uh, I'm very interested in it obviously as should everyone be because really it's operating in areas where there's a great cultural diversity there's a lot of people who are relatively newcomers uh, to the Australian landscape but we hope that they will put roots down um, this is one of those organisations that really helps with that and now you can help them. <laughs> Lachlan tell us a little bit about the fundraiser that you're having. Well it, it's 100 story building it was always established as being something that you know we wanted it to be community owned so we did consultation with the children and young people about the development of the space so all of the ideas in that space come from the the minds of the young people we work with there's a trapdoor in the back that goes down to 99 floors underground it's locked because there's a jungle growing out from it we don't want to lose any more children 
2018 has been a good year. We're going to keep it that way. But we do have a lost and found and a notice board and the kids using those clues have helped us sort of figure out what goes on under there. So we've, we've got a map of the building. We know what's on each of those 99 levels. Uh, and we are now inviting community members to invest in imagination uh, and purchase one of the levels below the building to support the ongoing work that we do. Each of those levels that uh, is up for sale has been crafted and imagined by one of the young people that we work with. Uh, and we are tomorrow launching um, on our website uh, a, uh, a sort of a system for you to be able to purchase one of these levels. And that purchase will then help us invest in our continuing programming and uh, community relations. It also means, and I think I, people need to understand this, if you purchase a level, um, you get a key, you get your certificate of sale, you also have responsibility for vacuuming, um, you have to attend the, uh, the the body corporate meetings, which means you're sitting along at a table alongside the narwhals from level 42 <laughs> and, uh, and you know, whatever it is those creatures are in level 58 that are making all that noise. So, you know, you have to, you have to understand you're dealing with that. Um, but other than that, you've got sort of the, not just the responsibility of taking care of that level, but also the understanding that you are contributing to sort of the ongoing programming that we're doing across Melbourne and it's growing. So if you're okay with kind of mythical monsters and, uh, <laughs> you know, crazy happenings, then this is definitely something you should get involved with. Now there's, you know, just kind of touring uh, your website and looking at some of the new kind of programs that you've got going for the young people involved with this incredible project. Uh, I noticed that there's a podcast happening as well, which just <laughs> delights me because I'm a massive podcast addict. Um, I love the audio storytelling form. Wonder why. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I really want to talk a little bit about this and, you know, what the kids are doing in that medium. There's a, there's a few different parts to it. So um, we've done quite a bit of uh, audio work. Uh, I mean, our storytelling takes lots of different shapes. Last year we worked with a group of um, EAL, English as Additional Language students from Year 7 and 8, from a bunch of high schools on the creation of collaborative um, songs. And so there was one song created by a bunch of students, which is called Stress. It was all about their lives. Um, more recently we've had our book club um, do a series of podcasts, which is really been about their reading habits and having lots of arguments about Harry Potter um, and they'll be doing as part of the Emerging Writers Festival a live podcast um, so that's coming up very soon um, and we also have a group of uh, year eight girls who are, have been working for the past nine months on a collaborative uh, radio story um, which is a crime murder mystery uh, and it features a, a, a cast of just you know unbelievably um, sort of deceitful characters there's some um, very unreliable narrators in there as well um, I, some of our staff have been pulled in to act the, the parts of these characters, um, they're also going to be soon working on the the, uh, the sound effects to go along with it, so using some Foley techniques, that sort of thing um, that hopefully, I think we're, we're looking at the timetable, that'll, that'll be ready for release sometime in the second half of this year um, so we, we, we have a lot of fun with sort of playing with the medium um, one of the stories that was created last year as well was using a, uh, a graphic novel The Deep, um, as a sort of a storyboard for um, recrafting that as a um, as an audio story. Um, we do love playing around with that um, in yeah lots of ways. It just sounds great. Uh, so look, uh, definitely, definitely, people should uh, you know get involved or find out more about this uh, this program. Obviously, uh, you know you can be involved in terms of being a donor or just supporting this sort of stuff. Uh, you know, obviously, listening to uh, things like the podcast, uh, but also just supporting it kick-ass project that's that's helping to make our, our writing community diverse but also just helping young people engage with writing and literacy 
uh, a group of people that really need it. Lachlan, thank you so much for coming in and, and talking to us. Where can people go to kind of, you know, sign up for this stuff? So uh, our website, uh, which is 100story, S-T-O-R-Y, building.org.au. Um, the fundraising site uh, will be launching tomorrow. Uh, in the meantime, if you sign up to our newsletter um, or follow us on Facebook or Instagram, you'll get all the information uh, and we'd love to have you as a, just a, as a part of that. We also do have a volunteer program as well, so you get a lot of information there um, on our website about that too. Um, but always always happy to hear from people who want to support what we're doing. Always great to have you on 3 to Lachlan. Thanks, Will. You're listening to Backstory. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. It's hard to believe that we've already come up to the end of the show here on Backstory. Uh, I'd like to thank my amazing guest, Lachlan Carter from 100 Story Building. And prior to that, Gideon Haig, the author of A Scandal in Bohemia. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.